Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're exploring the Cleary's archive and finding out how the iconic building in Dublin has been restored. Then in the second part of the show, we're looking at the legend surrounding Alexander the Great and we'll be hearing how his story inspired people around the world for centuries. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we looked at the life and legacy of Owen McNeill and explored how his reach and impact on Irish history went far beyond the events of 1916. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Built in the 19th century and opened as the New Mart, before becoming Cleary's, the Dublin department store became an iconic institution in Ireland. It was destroyed during the 1916 Rising, rebuilt and reopened in 1922, with the first Cleary's clock becoming a meeting place for thousands of couples. Cleary's closed in controversial circumstances, but since then extensive renovations have taken place and will reopen as Cleary's Quarter. And as part of this, a Cleary's archive has been opened to the public free of charge until the 31st of January where people can walk into a part of the building and learn about the past. And so to discuss the Cleary's archive and the reconstruction of the building I'm delighted to be joined by Caitlin White a public historian and the curator of the Cleary's archives and Caitlin is completing a PhD at Trinity College Dublin on how public history was used after partition to express and promote identities in Ireland. We're also delighted to be joined by George O'Malley of George O'Malley Plastering, who specialises in the conservation and restoration of lime plaster and stucco and who carried out all the plasterwork restoration. Well, you're very welcome. And Caitlin, might begin with you and I suppose how you got involved in this project curating the the Cleary's Archive. Thanks so much, Patrick. Um... I came on board a, a few months ago. The the company who who have taken over the building at Cleary's, they really were very eager to tell the story of Cleary's. Um, that in their reconstruction, they also wanted to to make an nod to the past and to celebrate the the memories and the stories that the people of Dublin have of the the store that's been there for 170 years. And I suppose in a way, because the story ended so badly and there was the long running compensation claims and the way the workers had been treated, that in a way this was an attempt to to have a new start, I suppose, for Cleary's by, I suppose, remembering the longer history and the better part with these new owners. Absolutely. It was it was a way to try and um, to try and get people to think back on their own memories. And even part of the exhibition does encourage people to to share their memories of, of Cleary's with us and what Cleary's means to them. Um, as you said, going back into the 20th century, because most people in Dublin and even further beyond will have memories of Cleary's, will have had a few encounters in Cleary's. Um, and so it really was just a way to kind of get back into that nostalgia and the memories and to encourage people to to, to relive, I suppose, uh, their time of Cleary's. And what's Dublin's relationship with Cleary's? And is it a Dublin institution? Is it an Irish institution? Uh, would it have been... And would it have been as as important and a landmark for for people everywhere in the country, or was it just a Dublin thing? 
Uh, I think it actually it, it's it's a bit of both um, because of course it starts it, it start, starts here in Dublin in in 1853 and it's linked to the Great Exhibition that happens in Dublin in 1853. They want to build a department store that is going to be able to provide for these uh, people who are going to be travelling from all over the world to come to the the exhibition in Dublin, and so they build the very one of the very first purpose-built department stores in the entire world when they build the Palatial Mart or the New Mart in 1853. And so it's very much, it's, it's centred here in Dublin. It's it's about Dublin. At the very start as well, it's, it's catering to the upper classes who, again, would, they're, they're a, lot, a lot more concentrated here in Dublin. They have their townhouses and they're selling luxury goods. But as Clarys goes on, I think, especially with the, the Guiney takeover um, in the 1940s, it definitely becomes a destination for people travelling up from the country to Dublin. And Guiney is a, Dennis Guiney, who, who took over the, the store, he's a very clever businessman and he knows his audience. He's from Kerry himself. And he even arranges so that for when when customers from the country come up to the Cleary store, that they can shop to their heart's content and not have to worry about bringing bags of shopping home because he'll arrange to get all their shopping posted back home to them. Uh, so he very much knows his audience. So I do think it's a, it's a bit of both. And the oldest artefact you have even predates Cleary's and it goes back to uh, the middle of the famine. It absolutely does, yeah. We have a leaf uh, on display in the exhibition from 1847 or Black 47 as it's uh, known in the history books. And as you said, it's right in the middle there of the famine. It's at a time when the population of the rest of the country is decreasing, but Dublin actually sees a, an increase in, in, in population. Um, people are coming into the city uh, seeking work or, or seeking a, a boat out to, to England or to America. But the lease that we have does prove that there's trading at that premises. Now, it's not the buildings that will go on to become the Palatial Mart, which eventually become called Cleary's, but there is trading on that premises for, for over 170 years. So it's, it's really remarkable to be able to have all of those documents um, spanning back through the history on display. Now, so many of us, most of us have seen the, the photographs of Dublin and the city centre in, in, in 1916 and how much destruction uh, was caused there. How, how badly was Cleary's damaged or destroyed? Cleary's was absolutely decimated. Uh, by the end of Easter week, only the facade remained. So it was just a shell of the building that had stood there. And the building that had stood there, it really stood out on what was then Sackville Street. It was a huge kind of triumph in Victorian design on a very Georgian-style street. And by the end of Easter week, it is absolutely, as I said, it's a shell. It's just the walls and the facade that remain. Uh, when you see the pictures, you can see it, it's crumbling inside because the fires that broke out in the city of Dublin, uh, they raged all around the city. And there are reports in the, the military pensions archives of rebels stationed in the GPO on the Thursday. So as the the rising is coming towards the end and they say that they spent the night watching the fires consume clearies um, as they start to spread and get more intense. And George, talk to me about your involvement then with the restoration of clearies because you're a master plasterer but in a way you faced different challenges than you're used to when you were looking at the type of plaster that was there with the clearies building. Indeed. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for asking the question. Uh, it's, it's very different. As has been pointed out, it was destroyed in 1916. Completely everything destroyed in it. So at that stage, they had to recreate or try to recreate what was there before them. It's best described as fibrous plaster rather than run-in-situ mouldings, which we would be 
more used to. We generally let the fibrous stuff go to shops that specialize in that end of it. But series was that big, that elaborate and that difficult that none of the normal shops were prepared. They didn't have the resources to do the job. We work hand in glove with the old mole company who are in business about the same time length as ourselves. They were happy to make the moles to our specification, but they didn't have the resources to make fit the new moulds and particularly to save any of the original and repair it to where it needed to be. And it's fascinating the way this is a building that, as as we heard from Caitlin, has been rebuilt before. It's gone through these different evolutions. And did you have to consider elements of conservation and elements of heritage when you approached this work? We, we very much did. Our brief from the owners was to conserve anything that could be reasonably conserved of the original. Uh, it would have been far simpler to take everything down, start from scratch, and lay it all out to a new grid. It would have worked out far better, far easier, far more economical for the owners. They were insistent that we didn't do that, that we conserved what was there, and that we and it was obviously far more difficult to camouflage joints and to, to join stuff up so you can't read the old and the new, where it all looks uniform, which is what we have left there now. Uh, build into that, that they had to introduce new fire systems, new sprinkler systems, new services right throughout the building. Uh, and we had to find a way to camouflage that, that when you look up at it, you don't pick anything out. Nothing, no, nothing catches your eye. And yet, if you study it, or I can tell now where the joints, where the where stuff has been left out, simply because it wouldn't fit in the space. That the new space, once the uh, fire systems were in place, was it's aesthetically pleasing. It doesn't catch your eye. It looks seamless from start to finish. And how difficult were the challenges restoring the building and what were the, I suppose, the, the, the most difficult challenges you faced? Well, that typically is one. So we had to cover new services and the, the sprinkler system uh, that in the event of a fire that these sprinklers all come on simultaneously, that, that, that was a huge challenge because the ceiling had to be dropped by two and three inches but the underside of the beam couldn't change. There's a, a, a situation where columns at some stage in the past went from a round column. There was a, a piece added onto the side of them. So the Corinthian capitals that were lost had to be remade. And then they had to be adjusted to, uh, to uh, incorporate this new addition on the side of the column, if you like. And the bases were exactly the same. And that took a lot of time and effort. And just simply working out what would look right, what would look like it had been there for 100 years, that didn't catch your eye. And I, we're so pleased, first of all, to be given the opportunity to work on something like this, but more particularly with the results. We know when it looks right and we know when it looks wrong. And clearly, most definitely looks right. 
Very good. And part of it, the, the image of, of, of Cleary's Caitlin is, of course, the iconic clock. Has it been the same clock since the that first rebuilding or has the clock itself changed and evolved? Yeah, I mean, people associate, when you, when you mention Cleary's at all, people first think of the clock and, and so many people have met under Cleary's clock. But it actually has been a number of different clocks. Uh, for Cleary's and so the one that was unveiled uh, that was originally that was originally made by Stokes uh, who are horologists based in Cork and it was brilliant because Philip Stokes who worked on the clock that's now outside the building with his own father he was the man to restore the clock for the unveiling but it has been in a number of different forms in a number of different shapes the clock that we see outside the building today is bigger than the clock that was outside the building in 1922. Um, but it still retains, I suppose, that, that central place in, in people's minds. And Caitlin, as a public historian, you must love the way uh, tracing or examining how something like that became so iconic. And how do you think it did develop? Was it just that in the days before people had phones and you couldn't text and you couldn't you know, ask, where are you? Are you running late? That Was it just that it was a good landmark where you could meet people? Absolutely. Um, it, 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 it's, it's iconic. Everybody knows where it is um, when we opened the exhibition, I talked with so many people who said that they would set their watches by Cleary's clock. And I also talked with a few people who said that the reason Cleary's clock was so pop- was such a popular meeting place was because if you asked uh, your a fella or a girl to meet you underneath Cleary's clock, you could then go to where Nelson's Pillar used to be um, or where it was before 66. And you could try to suss them out then. They're standing under Cleary's clock and you could decide then if you wanted to go and meet them or not. Like, did it not get very crowded, though, if you had all of these people, like, meeting underneath? It was like some, like, you know, dating waiting area where, you know, did they start chatting to each other? Or, you know, I'm sure there was all these terrible complications then if they suddenly found they liked someone else who was waiting. Absolutely. Um, it, it seems, again, from, from people's recollections of, of when they met under the clock. And we, we met so many couples who who are, are married, who, who originally met under, under Terry's clock where they had their first date. But uh, it, it does seem that uh, people travelled in packs. And so I can imagine that uh, if one group of friends is going to meet another group that are waiting underneath the clock, it was probably a social hub in itself before you even got inside the building. Now, in the exhibition, you've tried to tell the stories of the people who worked in Cleary's as well. And mm-hmm. uh, looking at things like the 1901 census and looking at those who had family connections, uh, maybe a brother or sister also working there. And um, it's interesting to look at, in a way, the social history of Cleary's as well. Absolutely, uh, because we'd say once Cleary's becomes Cleary's in 1883, it's bought by Michael Cleary and he's from Limerick. And so it's clear then when, when we look at the census, because it was common practice um, until the early 20th century for some of members of staff to, to live in uh, in their place of employment. And so when you look at the, the staff that are based there and you look at things like their names, but also you know where they're from, uh, most of the most of the staff that are actually there that are living in come, are coming from Munster. So they're coming from Limerick, Tipperary and Kerry. And it's clear that there's a, a kind of a pattern of, of chain migration there that, you know, an aunt or an uncle will be up working in Cleary's and will bring a niece or a nephew up to, to get them a job in the in the shop to, to train them in, you'd imagine, um, and to set them up for their life and their career, um, possibly staying up in Dublin um, or before they move on somewhere else. 
And what did it sell? And did did that change as well over the you know one hundred and seventy years? That or was it always involved in the same types of goods? No, absolutely. It it, it changes um, as it changes owner and and as audiences and society uh, change as well and the customers. So when it first opens in in the eighteen fifties, it very much is the when you look at the advertisements, it's it's advertising luxury goods. It's it's catering for the the upmarket. Um, goods that are on sale in Cleary's. It's, it's talking about, you know, women's gloves um, and it's talking about, uh, the, actually, clerical garb is one of the things that they're, they're very well known for selling in the 19th century. But then as the, as the store progresses, as society progresses, when the building actually is rebuilt after it's destroyed after the 1916 rising and when it's reopened in 1922, it expands hugely. There's over 50 departments and there's all these new departments. So there's a bonbon department um, or a sweet department, uh, as we might call it today. And so the, the, the goods that they stock and the goods that they sell is really reflective of the people who are going into to shopping clearies. Uh, so it definitely it changes a lot over the 170 years. And then that social dimension in terms of the fact that it had these tea rooms as well. Uh, it, it had places where people could meet and discuss and chat that there was an, an important an important dimension and especially for, you know, a space for women that they wouldn't have in other areas. Absolutely. Uh, in the, the 19th century and the early 20th century, ladies of maybe the upper classes, they're, they're, they're very constricted by strict etiquette that they have to observe when they leave the home. Uh, but Cleary's was somewhere, and it, it really, you can really see in those advertisements that it, 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 it's targeting uh, lady shoppers in the 19th century, but it's somewhere that they can go where they're not constricted by these strict rules of etiquette. So they can shop, but they can also socialise. Like you said, there's the tea rooms. Um, they're later on, actually, in the 20th century, they even get a hairdresser's uh, in Cleary's uh, to cater for, for their, their shoppers. But it very much is a place where where women in particular in the 19th century can go and be a bit freer than they are outside of the doors of Cleary's. And also important employment opportunities for women as well. Absolutely. I mean, they employed men and women um, They, for much of the 20th century and, you know, until the mid-20th century, usually men, if, if they went into a job in Cleary's, it would be a job for life. Women would typically leave uh, on marriage but again, with people recollecting with, with oral histories that have come across, many women met their husbands through working in Cleary. So as, as a young woman, they might start out um, working in Cleary's and that's where they kind of get a chance to socialise again outside of their, their circle. They'd meet new people. Um, they'd be able to progress as well. Not all women um, got married and, and left their employment. So they'd be able to progress along the career ladder. And of course, I mean, one of the, the highest positions in Cleary's for many, many years, was held by, by a woman, by Mary Guiney, uh, when her husband, Dennis, purchased the building in, in 1940 and all its contents, and he established the, the company then in 1941. She was immediately named as a co-director, which really, really unusual for the time. And you can see on the some of the documents that are on display in the exhibition, both of their signatures are required. They're both named as co-directors on these documents. And when Dennis, uh, he passes away in 1967, Mary actually continues as managing director until t- 2004. Uh, she dies, she's 103 years of age when she dies, and she's still the managing director of Cleary's up until her death. Incredible. And and was she still active all the way right up until that, or certainly still having to uh, look at their papers, review the work, and right up to that point? 
Absolutely. Uh, until I think she she attended meetings uh, until she was up until she was 101. And then for the last two years, she was still very active from her home that she would sign the documents and, and send them back to Cleary's. But she was very much a presence uh, up until very shortly before her death. Well, tonight we are talking about the restoration of Cleary's, the Cleary's archive and the history of an iconic Dublin institution. So we're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll find out what exactly is in the exhibition. And we'll also talk to George, our master plaster, about how he got involved in the business. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the history of the iconic Clearies and the restoration of the building. I'm joined by Caitlin White, a public historian and the creator of the Clearies Archive, and also George O'Malley, a master plasterer who carried out all the plasterwork restoration. And George, I'm fascinated by the, the fact that you know, it's not a profession that you you hear people talking about a lot. So, and it's such a specialist area. How did you become a master plasterer? How did you get involved in that line of work? Uh, my father was a master plasterer, and his stated ambition was that none of his sons would follow in his footsteps. He had to leave school when he was twelve. He was a highly intelligent man. But he had circumstances forced him to leave when he was 12. He served his time properly. He was a master without the accreditation in his lifetime. I, as a young boy, idolized my father. He had a, a big workshop with all his moles hanging up. And I was fascinated by them. And from as far back as I can remember, I just wanted that. The first time I saw my father plastering, he looked like a magician. And it looked like sleight of hand and smoke and mirrors. And it just looked amazing to see him taking stuff up off a board onto a hawk, taking it off the hawk with his trowel, laying it on a surface, laying it flat, running moles, etc., etc. He sent his sons to boarding school and third-level education, uh, it did not suit me. I just couldn't settle. I didn't want to be an engineer. I wanted to be a plasterer. And he finally conceded defeat in about 1973 or 74 and brought me with him to serve my time. I worked with him for a couple of years, and then my uncles who had travelled the world and come back to work in Dublin in the late 60s, early 70s, I finished my apprenticeship with them. I got a really, really good apprenticeship. A master plaster must be able to do everything. It's not enough to be cherry-picking the fine bits out and learning that. So my apprenticeship included everything. There is nothing in plaster that I'm not familiar with. There's nothing in plaster that I can't do. I was as excited at seven I'm still as excited at 67 as I was at 7 about plaster, about plastering. I love it. I love the craft. I'm at my very best when I have tools in my hand and I'm in the middle of a gang all creating something that to me is absolutely stunningly beautiful. 
And you mentioned the accreditation and I was looking at that. It really is a, a complex, difficult process where you have to to be certified. You have to uh, present three projects to a committee, uh, yes. projects at different stages of completion. I think one finished, one at the beginning yeah. and one nearly finished. And they are reviewed and examined and you really have to reach a certain level before you you, you receive that accreditation. Very much so, and you're 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 examined by your peers, and I'm part of that process myself. Now that if somebody applies for membership, I'm part of that exam, and it's really tough. We do not. I was not accepted without ticking all the boxes, and we can't and don't accept people that are not fully qualified in their trade. And it means when they do want this expertise in plastering, uh, you're one of the people that uh, they go to and certainly a, 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 a prominent figure they go to. So, for example, uh, the work at Leinster House or the devastating fire at St. Mel's Cathedral in Longford, the rebuilding of that, uh, the cathedral in Ballina. Uh, you've worked on a lot of very significant projects. Indeed. And, and of course, delighted that theories would be included in that bracket. That um, it, it, it's significant on a number of levels for us. First of all, to see the destruction since the building closed and to be able to stabilise, repair and replace what was missing there. Particularly, I would have been conscious at all times of the destruction of from 1916, the terrible destruction that that caused, like to hear it again, described as the building in flames. Looking at it, I know that there was nothing left except the shell. And to see the destruction in Ukraine at the moment, the terrible, terrible destruction, and let let theories be a ray of hope for those people. But you can rebuild, you can build hope in a building like that. See, Cleary's was quality. Yes, it was designed, it was, but it was its old quality. It is quality. And it's quality again now. And that indeed, a very powerful message there about hope and uh, uh, the possibilities for rebuilding in the future, both here and indeed Ukraine and, and elsewhere. Caitlin, the exhibition is running until the end of the month, the 31st of January. Talk, talk me through it. Talk me through what will I see? Uh, what's there? How much of the, 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 the space is open? So it's, um, it is, it's run until the, the end of the month and it's open till six in the evening every evening and then till 8 on Thursdays and Fridays. So plenty of time for people to, to get in and have a look. But if you do go into the exhibition, uh, what you'll see is it, it's in the main area. So in the main reception, the main atrium area of the, the building itself. The first thing that really struck me when I when I went in was those beautiful stairs, uh, masterfully restored, the staircase at the very end of the of the hallway. But as you go in, the, the documents that are on display really are representative of all the different all the different types of history to be found in the history of Cleary's. Um, of course, I have, a huge, I have a huge interest in the social history, in bringing the stories of the ordinary people who shopped in Cleary's to the fore. But it's really important as well to, to see how the huge global events and, and national events, so the likes of the 1916 rising and World War II, they're happening, um, as we've all learned in, in history in school. But how they're actually impacting ordinary people's lives, I think, is really important. So when you come through the exhibition, there is, of course, there's the 1847 lease 
there's the keys to the, the deposit box of the, the old Munster and Leinster Bank. Um, there's the profit and loss account showing how Clearies are paying back from the, 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 the damage that was done during the rising. But there's also then there's the licences that we have for the licences to sell flour and sugar and tea during the Second World War and, and rationing continues until 1951. So those kind of licences. But they also have the licences then for the performing rights licence. They have the licence for the public dance halls uh, because there's the ballroom in Clearies, they have an in-house orchestra, the dancers go on until three in the morning, seven nights a week. Um, so it really is, for me, it was about emphasising how ordinary people, the people that were going in and out these doors every day, the staff and the customers, how they were living their lives uh, over these 170 years. And what is the plan for this you know, newly renamed Cleary's Quarter? It seems to be trying to have a mixture of old and new with a rooftop restaurant, their bar, various hospitality elements. The tea rooms, I think, are being reopened and refurbished. Is, is it, it's definitely a new phase in the evolution of it. Absolutely. It's, it's a new phase in, in the history of Cleary's. It is a new phase. Um, it, it's a new destination. I suppose, uh, for, for O'Connell Street. And that's the hope that it would be a destination for shoppers. It'll be a destination for people looking for a meal, uh, looking for a night out. It'll be a destination for people dropping in to have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. Those tea rooms, as you mentioned, um, have been restored. I was able to see some of them, um, the doors of them, and they just they look absolutely fantastic. It's really going to bring, when it all opens, it's really going to bring people back to the, the heyday of Cleary's. And as a public historian, you must be fascinated by the public reaction that you're seeing to the exhibition and to the fact that uh, people are wanting to to set foot on these grounds again. And is it because of nostalgia, a personal connection or a family connection to it? Is it curiosity that what are the reasons bringing people back? Yeah, I mean, it, it was fantastic to see the, the, the response to the exhibition when it opened. Um, and the amount of people who, who were coming in and who the amount of people that came in with their own stories as well. I was talking to, to one gentleman, um, John Crow, and he was he, he worked his entire life, uh, his, his working life in Cleary's. And he brought in an old Cleary's bag full of memorabilia, things that were bought from the shop, old receipts from the shop. Uh, he brought in a picture of when he won the, the Guiney Cup um, for Gaelic sport in, in, 19, in the 1980s. And it really, that, that's it for me. I mean, there, there were so many others uh, like John, but it was those personal stories, the, the nostalgia, the connections um, it is, were really what Cleary's meant to people. Um, it was really kind of how Cleary's has always stood there and hopefully will stand there for, for generations to come. Um, but generations of families all have their own memories and theories. That, that, that's, I think, for me, what really stood out with the, the people who were coming to visit. And George, I get that sense from talking to you as well, that that was something you were very aware of when you were involved in the reconstruction of the building. Very much so. Very, very much so. The, the building, in my eyes, belongs to the people of Dublin particularly, but absolutely to the people of Ireland. The owners would be the first to tell you that they are mere custodians that they're going to pass it on in time. And it, it will survive another 100 years plus of what they have done to it. And George, I mentioned that you worked on the Leinster House reconstruction. I wonder, 
I'm curious, how difficult is it when you have another iconic building like that, where which would have been built in a different age, a different time, you know, very much the home of the, the Fitzgeralds, the, the Dukes of Leinster. Are there certain things that are lost through time that made doing a work like that much more difficult? It, it, it may be to a lay person, but I go back again to what I said originally. A plaster, a qualified plaster, must serve a full apprenticeship. And if you serve a full apprenticeship with a proper firm, which I did, then nothing is any more or less difficult. There's no mystery. It's that our job, a lot of the time, is to reverse engineer something. And I think of Longford Cathedral particularly, where we had to reverse engineer to figure out how they did the thing originally and then copy that. Without that mindset, it's virtually impossible. And even with changes in technology, it's possible to kind of identify what kind of tools and equipment they would have used so that it can be it can be repeated what, what was done originally. Yes, absolutely. We're not afraid to enhance their methods with new technology. All it does is, it's an aid, but it doesn't change the basic principle that you take wet plaster, throw it at a surface, and shape it to a form, whether it's uniform, whether it's decorative, whether it's an enrichment. The principles are still the same. The materials have to be the same. And it's what was used in 1750, 1850, or in this case, 1921, 2021, 22. Fascinating. And Caitlin, then, as a public historian, what is the the, the value of studying a, a building or a, a, an iconic institution like Cleary's? Is it is it the personal stories? Is it the employment history? Is it about that we learn about retail? Like, what is the what what are the insights or what do we learn about about Dublin and about Ireland and about life from looking at Cleary's? I think the the value in 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 taking a, an institution and a building like Cleary's really is that it has it has stood there. It has bore witness to, to some of the biggest events and some of the, the more personal events in, in history for the last 170 years. And by taking that, that one building or that one institution and looking at it, it gives you a really holistic view of how life has developed over, over the last 170 years. Because, I mean, for Cleary's, as well as when I was looking through the archive and looking through the documents, um, as well as, you know, being involved in some of the big political developments and revolutionary developments, so like the 1916 rising um, in 1955, Sean Lamasque gave his really famous speech there, became known as the Cleary speech, which was to kind of kick off T.K. Whitaker's programme for, for economic expansion. And as well as that, there's also the, the there was a book uh, which did, did one of the things and, and unfortunately couldn't put it on display just because it had names and addresses and and all the rest, but there was a book that listed all the lost property that was found in Cleary's. And then it also listed when people came in to claim it and how they proved they claimed it. And there's there was literally in that book 50 years of lost purses and bags and scarves and coats that were claimed then by ordinary people. And I just think that for somewhere like Cleary's, when you look at that and look at all the different parts that make it up, uh, you get a really, really good and really rich insight into into just life as it was, the, the, the highs and the lows, the, the big things and the little things. Um, it just all comes together in somewhere like Cleary's. 
Okay, well, my thanks to Caitlin White, a public historian and the creator of the Cleary's Archive for joining me tonight. Caitlin uh, helped put together that wonderful archive that is running uh, in uh, Cleary's until the end of the month. And my thanks also to George O'Malley, the master plasterer who specialises in the conservation and restoration of buildings and who carried out all the plaster work restoration for joining me. Caitlin, George, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure, thank, you, thank you. Thank you so much, George and Caitlin. Well, we're going to take another quick break now, but when we come back, we'll be finding about the legends surrounding the life of Alexander the Great. Uh, so stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. When it comes to making myths, Alexander the Great's story has it all. He built an empire that stretched across the world, rode across the sky in a flying chariot, and ascended to the bottom of the sea in a glass bell. Or did he? Well, all of the myths, legends and stories are explored in a brilliant new exhibition running at the British Library in London. It's going to be running until the 19th of February this year. And to talk to me about it, I'm delighted to be joined by Iria Thorsdotter, the digital content curator for the exhibition. Iria, you're very welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a brilliant idea to look at Alexander the Great's story, but in terms of the making of the myth. And you've brought together, I think it's 140 exhibits from 25 countries around the world, 20 different languages. This is really a global story. Absolutely. Um, So, well, as you say, we have stories about Alexander from over 25 different countries and so many stories from places that the real historical Alexander didn't actually ever make it to. So we have we have tales of him uh, in a in a comic book in a 70s comic book going to China and learning about gunpowder, and uh, we have stories of him coming to Britain, for example, and creating England and Scotland and uh, producing the ancestors of King Arthur. So it it really is a completely universal story, and we have objects that range over 2,000 years as well. So it's it's a story that's been going on for a long time and it is still ongoing. And a big part of the mythology is the way he travelled all across the world, going to places that the real Alexander never did. But the mythological Alexander, uh, he really got everywhere. Oh, absolutely. I mean, not not only in places that we would find on a world map today, but um, he, he tries to go to the edge of the world. Uh, he tries to get into paradise and um, they, they don't let him in. Um, they give him an apple though, so that's okay. Um, and he tries to, as you said earlier, see the sky from above by getting griffins to carry him. He goes to the bottom of the world. He meets talking trees um, and asks them what his future holds, which is sadly not not a great deal left, is, is what he was told. He won't see his mother again because he's approaching the end of his life, is what the talking trees told him. He, he battles dragons. And why do you think the story of Alexander does capture the imagination in this way? Why has he inspired writers and poets and artists over uh, the centuries and thousands of years? Is it because of his youth? Is it because of the ambition he showed? Like there definitely seems to be something that, that does capture the imagination. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's partly because he was very well known in his own lifetime. But I think... After that, it, and it, it was great achievements because he died when he was only 32. And to, to have conquered the, the Persian Empire that he, he took over and expand beyond it um, in such a short time period was a colossal achievement. And I think it's, it's that that creates the initial interest in him. But also he was his own first storyteller, really. 
So he he put forward stories in um, as a form of propaganda, really, that he was the son of a god or um, related to uh, Heracles, for example. And those stories have just captured imagination and sort of spun and grown over time. And then people just want a little bit of that exciting story. And I think it helps also, he's been dead for about 2,000 years. So he's, he's, um, he's not going to be offended by any stories that we tell now. He's just this big figure in history that can really be adapted and changed to suit the story that we want to tell, or the culture that happens to be creating a new story wants to tell at that point in time. So he's very adaptable and dependable in that sort of way. His horse Bucephalus is a big part of his legends as well. Oh, Bucephalus is a, a great character. Every great hero needs a great steed, don't they? So um, that's what Bucephalus is. Bucephalus is, um, he was definitely a real horse. I think there are enough records to suggest that, but the stories really transform him so that he's not just your average war horse. He um, is this wonderful man-eating beast that only Alexander can ride. And the prophecy went that whoever could ride Bucephalus would become king of the world. And Alexander is the only person who achieved that by watching the horse carefully and realizing that Bucephalus was afraid of his own shadow. So he could turn Bucephalus into the sun. So he didn't see his shadow, which allowed Alexander to get on and thus fulfilling the prophecy. But in later stories, um, there are there are examples of Bucephalus actually avenging Alexander. So there are some versions of the stories that say Alexander was murdered or poisoned um, we don't actually know for certain how he died, but in this story, that's what happened. And there's this beautiful manuscript in our exhibition that actually shows Bucephalus crying. You can see tears coming out of his eyes as he stands over Alexander's dead body, just weeping over the loss of his master. And then on the next page, Bucephalus goes and avenges Alexander and attacks the people who were responsible for his death. So he's he's a very loyal horse, is Bucephalus. Alexander actually loved him so much that he named his city after Bucephalus. That is true love indeed. Now, every great <laughs> hero needs a great mentor and guide. And I wonder, does it help the, the, the Alexander myth, the fact that he did have the great philosopher Aristotle as his tutor? Oh, um, absolutely, it must do. Because Aristotle himself is such a fascinating figure. And then when you when you put the two together, that that's a real powerhouse for a story. Um, but there's been some lovely traditions crop up. So there's a, a tradition that people present uh, letters or or stories as if they were written by Aristotle for Alexander. Um, so we have in the exhibition we have several versions of this, but there's one that's never been on display before, which I I'm particularly um, interested in. So it's a letter from the tutor of the then Prince Henry, who would become King Henry VIII. Um, so this tutor is claiming to be Aristotle, which in itself I think is quite a big uh, big claim to fame. Uh, so he's writing this letter as if he is Aristotle, and he's creating it as advice that would be given to Alexander the Great, and it is given as a gift to the then Prince Henry, um, so that he would be as great a leader as Alexander the Great, so it, it suggests how to be a, a fair and just ruler and how to treat your citizens. Um, and well, we have no idea if Henry VIII ever did read it, but perhaps not, given some of his reign. It's a very interesting piece. 
What's fascinating about the exhibition is that it's as much an exhibition about storytelling as it is about Alexander the Great. How how cinematic interpretations develop, as you mentioned, a comic book, computer games, novels, paintings, poems. That it's very much how stories are told across the ages. Absolutely. So I think it just the exhibition really explores the um, the universality of of, of storytelling. It, we all love a great story. We might access those stories in different formats, particularly in, in this day and age, as you say, with computer games and films, or even social media, where Alexander does crop up a lot, or through music even. We all just really enjoy a great story, whether it's, you know, we're adapting it for a, a particular reason, or just because you just want a bit of light relief from... You know, what is going on in the world? You just need a little bit of a break. And Alexander is just an example of how that can be done. We're not saying all great stories have to be about Alexander the Great, but he's a really interesting figure to trace the power of storytelling throughout 2,000 years. And yes, as you're saying, we, we even have this bit of Assassin's Creed in, in the exhibition because Alexander crops up there. So we've really not um, just kept it to books and manuscripts, as you might expect from a library. But we've, we've expanded beyond that to just include all forms of storytelling. A huge part of the mythology is, is whether he was a god or a man and uh, uh, all these stories about whether it was Zeus or an Egyptian deity. or But definitely that there was something divine about him. And I wonder, did people even during the course of his lifetime think that this wasn't uh, a human child, that this was some kind of godlike person, who deity who was walking the earth? Well, we, I suppose we can't ever know for certain what they thought um, because... Not all those records survive. But it, there are enough stories, even from quite early on, so representations in coins, for example, um, of Alexander being portrayed as a as a god or as an ancient hero, um, or you know, descended from one of those. Uh, that that really suggests that if he didn't, or if the people didn't believe it, it, they sort of liked the stories. They wanted to. And it was a, an image that Alexander really seemed to want to portray of himself because they, he did allow it to be used on his coinage or his successors chose to use it on their coinage. So it's, um, it's definitely something that would have been encouraged whether or not it was is truly believed, I, I don't know. And what part of the story would have surprised you the most when you were putting together the exhibition? What what aspect of the Alexander mythology really made you sit up and uh, in surprise? Oh, goodness, there were so many, so many bits. Um, so I I knew several of the Alexander legends before, um, but I didn't realise just how um, widespread they were. I, I certainly didn't know that we had uh, examples of Alexander's story from so many different countries. I wasn't expecting there to be so many modern stories about Alexander. Um, I, I actually wasn't expecting him to crop up in so much music as well. So there are, um, we have in the exhibition Handel's opera Alessandro, but at the time that was written, there were already 30 European operas that featured Alexander the Great. And even um, more recently, there's a uh, song by Iron Maiden about Alexander the Great. And I, that's something I hadn't anticipated. I hadn't expected him to be so popular still 
in the music world today. And any connections with Ireland or Irish mythology or representations of the myth, apart from, I suppose, Colin Farrell playing him in the movie? <laughs> uh, yes, Colin Farrell in the, in the uh, 2004 Oliver Stone film is, is quite something. Um, we, have some, we have some beautiful loans from the Chester Beatty Library in, in Dublin. There's one, actually, that I, I think is a particularly lovely story. Um, we, we have a little section in the exhibition that is particularly looking at uh, Alexander and elephants in his battles in, in India. But the Chester Beatty Library have actually lent us um, a Serbian Alexander romance. But what is so interesting about this manuscript is that it was, um, it's, a, it's a 17th century manuscript, but it was at some point, probably by a bookseller, divided. So the Chester Beatty Library have a part of this manuscript, and the British Library have a part of it. And this is the first time in about 100 years that the two halves have been brought back together and displayed together. So it's, it's a really lovely story. And I have to say, the, the item from Chester Beatty has... I think the most glorious elephants I've ever seen in it. Whoever threw them had clearly never met a, an elephant in their life. To me, they look like um, they've grown anteaters with a nice wobbly little trunk. They're very sweet. So they've been telling the story of Alexander the Great for 2,000 years. Do you think they'll still be telling and retelling the story 2,000 years from now? I wouldn't be at all surprised if they were. It's just such a marvellous story because there really is a section for everybody, whether you want to hear the battles or you want music or you want mythical quests, it's all, it's all there. Um, so I, I really think that his story could survive another 2,300 years. It might, by that point, be completely unrecognisable from what we believe the historical Alexander to be, but it's storytelling. You know, stories live and adapt. It's, it's, um, it's just a marvellous thing, really. Well, my thanks to Iria Thor's daughter, the digital content creator for the exhibition, uh, for joining me tonight to talk about it. Alexander the Great, The Making of a Myth. It's an exhibition running at the British Library in London until the 19th of February this year. So you can find out more by visiting bl.uk forward slash events and you'll get all the details there for the Alexander the Great exhibition. And it does, of course, as we said there, have at this Irish dimension. Iria, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.